0: Music mm-hmm. Welcome to Man on the Silver Mountain. I think this is episode 8. I'd like to thank everyone who has joined Patreon. For as little as $1, you can help support the podcast and get some free stuff to boot. So far, I've given away the Lifetime of Grey Skies audiobook, a bunch of Tombs covers, including David Bowie Heroes, uh, Mother of Mercy by Sam Hain, or Sowin, if you're into witchcraft, Rorschach's Oppress, and then there's the Stockton Tapes, which is the demos of last year's The Grand Annihilation. That's uh, our LP on Metal Blade. Another way that you can help support the podcast is to give it a like on iTunes, a review, uh, some social media shares, or you can just tell a friend that you have a great time listening to this podcast. All that sort of stuff helps and i would appreciate it a lot of you guys have already done this so um in advance i'd like to say thank you to everyone who has done that and i'm trying to get this operation to the next level in 2018. got a lot of plans and i'm uh, going to need you guys to help me out with some stuff here as usual i'm going to give a shout out to onnit that's our affiliate sponsor if you're into good clean living and exercise, check out the portals at EverythingWentBlackMedia.com There's one for food and another one for exercise equipment. I'm really into pretty much the entire trip that it has. Some of you that know me personally know that I quite enjoy physical fitness and training and um, a lot of the stuff that it has to offer is something that I use in my routines that i do every day you know kettlebells weighted vests battle ropes things like that and i'm also quite fond of their supplements you know, i use the mct oil um, you know there's like some recovery protein that i use um, and also i'm really big on the krill oil all that stuff is part of my uh, my everyday thing here also if you dig coffee This whole podcast is brought to you by Savage Gold Coffee. And uh, you can just head over to savagegoldcoffee.com. As a matter of fact, I'm drinking some of the espresso blend right now. I did not make it in an espresso maker. I used, uh, I just ground it up, put it in a Chemex, and went for it. It actually tastes delicious. So, Anyway. Another thing that I wanted to bring up that's on the Everything Went Black Media website is uh, you guys might notice that there's like a services thing there. And what I've started doing is in a variety of different studios, I've become an actual media producer, someone who has recorded storytelling and podcasts for other people and I'm trying to beef up work in this field. So... If you're out there you look to record an audio book you want to do a podcast you need help doing that sort of stuff or you're just looking for some dialogue work check out the services section at everything on black media and that's uh you know just a quick plug for that <clears throat> before we get rolling on this thing we're going to be announcing some stuff shortly with tombs and um you know in may into june pretty stoked about it uh bunch of you guys that live up in Canada have been um, hitting me up about when are you guys coming to Canada? So, and we are coming. So stay tuned. Um, I'm not exactly sure when, but in the next few weeks we're going to be announcing some tour dates. It's a short thing. Nothing too crazy. Mostly in the northeast and southern Canada. A uh, couple of the dates are pretty pretty fucking cool. And uh, the rest are going to be a bunch of solo dates with us and this band Barishi. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out there again. It's been far too long, so I'll see you guys out on the road. Last episode, it featured Mike Gitter, a guy who has been involved in music scene ever since the early 80s. And he's someone that, I, I'm not quite exactly sure how I met Mike, but um, I've known him for a long time. He's like this guy who's always been out on the periphery. Um, I mean, he's worked for Roadrunner, and um, he's currently working at Century Media. I think this is actually his second time around working there. But he's in like a high-level executive position. He worked at Roadrunner during the the, pretty much the heyday of that label. There was, you know, Typo Negative, Sepultura you know side, all that stuff was happening on roadrunner when he was there and um yeah he was c- kind of like a guy that made a lot of things happen in the last episode we talked about his uh, collection of the triple x fanzine that's um something he did back in the 80s uh 20 issues uh, it's you know it's pretty pretty rad it's required reading for people who are into hardcore punk and you know that sort of stuff and uh, a lot of interviews with you know Glenn Glenn Danzig, Rollins, uh, John Stab all that seminal hardcore punk music that has influenced so much stuff that's come afterwards so um now I apologize I'm using a new microphone I'm trying out this uh, blue snowball mic and I'm starting to realize that I think I need a pop filter. So I'm monitoring this through the cans. And I can hear some uh, some pop noises. So I have to up my game and get a pop filter. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to try to be careful. And, and control that sort of breath. So since that episode, I've been on this uh, nostalgia trip about Boston. I lived there... For a few years back in the '90s, you know, in some ways, that's kind of like where the whole thing started for me. You know, this uh, this whole meandering, up and down journey into the abyss that I call my life, my creative pursuits. Um, you know, just the just the idea that I can actually do music and play in bands and travel the country. I guess that that whole thing started in Boston. I think it was maybe uh, nineteen ninety four or ninety five when I moved back there. I'd gone to college um, at Boston University. I was in this thing with this girl. That's a whole other story for another time. You know, basically, I graduated college, got this you know high paying job which placed me around the country. I lived in places like Bellingham, Washington, uh, Tulare, California, um, Cape Canaveral, Florida. You know, some real nice places, you know, some real, real hot spots of activity. And um, yeah, so this girl was going to grad school in Berkeley, California, throughout this uh, Huck Finn adventure that I had embarked on we had this big plan that we were going to move back to Boston and, you know, start this life, you know, like, you know, she, you know, was in the medical field and uh, I figured I'd be able to get a job doing engineering, which is what I went to school for. And, you know, get an apartment, get married, have kids, you know, to kind of do that whole thing. You know, at that point I was kind of thinking about, Uh, the wild years being behind me of like going to hardcore and metal shows and you know I kind of at the tender age of 24 I was thinking about yeah man you know this is like time to grow up time to give up on all those dreams and um, you know luckily things didn't work out (laughs) you know looking back on that whole thing man it's like Two people that were definitely not meant to be and it's uh, probably for the best and I'm sure she's much happier now as I am you know my life you know it spiraled off in a completely different direction so anyway I quit this high paying job so I could be back in Boston I arrived in the middle of the winter no job but a bunch of money and rented a small basement studio apartment it was outside uh, Fenway Park on Beacon Street you know so I was kicking it solo in my Charles Bukowski basement apartment holding on looking for work you know just basically trying to keep things together and uh, you know putting together this whole thing I didn't really know anyone at that point you know I had a, I had a few friends that lived in town but they were deep into their lives. It was a really lonely time for me. There was this kid, Ken Smar, that I went to high school with, and uh, he'd gone to Berkeley School of Music. He was one of those kids back in high school that I kind of looked up to. I think he was a you know year older than me. Uh, he was in this cool band, and you know he knew about all punk rock stuff, and he had all the records and. He played guitar. He can like rip solos, and you know all this kind of stuff. And he, yeah, you know, I, I got to say, he was definitely a big influence on me. And um, I think Flipper, the band Flipper, uh, came to my awareness through him and uh, my good friend Mark Palladini, who they both played in a band together. And Mark and I actually briefly, you know, played in a high school band together too. So, so anyway, Ken was uh he still does i think i think he still actually he still lives in boston and um you know he was literally one of the only people i knew and uh kind of our big thing was to go to this place called builds bar on tuesday nights it was this uh dance club style place i think it was like builds bar slash venus de milo and normally it was like these like euro you know or or dudes from the north shore would show up there on the weekends and you know disco dance and do cocaine and you know pick up chicks and stuff like that getting fist fights you know all that fun stuff but on tuesday nights uh, there was a a local band thing going on there which was uh, actually really cool um i saw a lot of really great shows uh, you know there was this band Stompbox that was uh, this big band. They had just signed to Sony Records and you know pretty much everyone was talking about them. You know they were out uh, you know getting ready to go out on the tours and you know do all this stuff that I, I had just only dreamt about doing at that time. There was a band Mung, this uh, kind of stiff little fingers punk band, 6L6. Power Man 5000, which some of you might actually know. I mean, they they went on to become, you know, a big, like, you know, new metal kind of thing. But they they actually have been around for over 20 years. You know, and every every now and then, I see ads for, like, a new record or, you know, a poster for a tour that they're on. And I'm like, jam, That's like, so many years ago, I remember seeing them play at Venus de Milo. And um, you know, someone was like, yeah, that, that singer guy is related to Rob Zombie. And you know, you know how it goes. So one night I went down to this place. And uh, there was this band La Gratona. And they were on the bill. And my whole perspective of Boston changed that night. Now before I talk about La Gratona we have to go back to my college years in the 80's <clears throat> I had seen a band called Slaughter Shack they were this uh, Danzig, sabbath heavy rock kind of metal band they looked really cool you know like leather you know big ass engineer boots blue jeans you know they had this like really intense singer who kind of looked like Axl Rose but like like the evil Axl Rose. You know, he had dyed red hair and baseball hat on backwards. He's tattooed up. And back then, there really weren't a lot of people with full sleeve tattoos. And uh, yeah, this dude was like really intense, man. And, and I thought uh, Slaughter Shack was like, was pretty sick. And so, anyway, Slaughter Shack, great band. I think they did a split. With Stompbox, who possibly at the time may have been called Built Spear. Now, if there's a, any of you old men out there that were around in Boston at that time, you might want to confirm that for me. And if I'm correct, or if I'm not correct, please let me know. You can hit me up on the Facebook page, or Instagram, or you know, email me directly, or you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. they were a pretty scary band at the time there was you know this is back in the late 80s so speed metal was kind of the thing you know there was another band in boston called wargasm you know and they they were doing that kind of slayer speed metal thrash metal thing but slaughter shack was slow mid-tempo just this gnarly like sound and uh yeah, I know. I'm just going on and on about these guys. So, flash forward a few years, this band Lagratona comes on stage. You know, there's this skinny, tattooed guy wearing a Sonic the Hedgehog t-shirt, tight jeans, Doc Martens. is you know, belting out some intensely heavy vocals. That was Colin Burns, the Slaughter Shack guy. Sort of updating his look. But still laying it down like a motherfucker. It was an early version of the band. And you know. Now that I think of it. The band may not actually be called Lagratona At that time. And that night. They may have been called Suicide King. And Suicide King. They put out a demo. Which I have. There's a great song on there called 21. And um, that band. Sort of morphed into La Gratona so anyway it was hard to you know man it's, this is a bunch of years ago I'm going to say that it was Suicide King so we had Colin on vocals this guy Kevin Norton was on bass he used to play bass for Eye for an Eye which was like a you know, pretty big hardcore band in Boston Taz Niles on drums also from Eye for an Eye a few years later, Taz and I would join forces in the first lineup of Anodyne on guitar, Dana Ambrose, originally from Cleveland. <laughs> he would eventually move back and start Keelhaul with uh, Will, Chris, and uh, Aaron, and, uh, but that's uh, another time, another story. The music was on a totally different level than anything else that night it was this sort of unholy blend of black flag unsane scratch acid and in a weird way there was this like birthday party thing going on it was kind of exactly what i needed to hear man because i had always been a big flag fan and i was just starting to discover bands like unsane and scratch acid and You know, Nick Cave and the birthday party and all that sort of stuff. So it just kind of reassembled the synapses in my brain. And, you know, kind of allowed me to look at music a little differently. So those months in the basement went on and on and on. It was rough. I briefly worked at a copy center. I was taking my one class at BU to finish my degree. And just sort of hung out by myself. You know, we'd do those Tuesday night things. I remember a couple times I went out to Ken's apartment where he was living with his wife, a girl that I also went to high school with. And, uh, you know, that was about it, man. It was just, you know, trying to trying to make things happen in a way. Um, you know, I was reading a lot. I was getting into the Rollins 213-61 stuff. You know, all of his stuff and some of the other writers on, like you know, such as Don Bima, the Joel Cole book, Planet Joe. I was listening to a lot of Rollins band. Like I said, I was into Scratch Acid, you know, the Swans. And then there was this band called Cell that I found out uh, that featured guys from Das Damen. This old SST band. Their first album, Slow Blow, was on heavy rotation for me. Eventually, I moved out of the dungeon with some guys that I met out west. We had this plan, uh, which we concocted when I was living in Bellingham. And, the, you know, these two guys I was playing with out there were like, yeah, man, let's move to Boston. We'll do a band and, you know, see what happens. Move into the big city, you know. Didn't really work out with those guys, you know, in a bunch of different ways didn't really work out. But, you know, at this stage optimistic, young. We got this apartment in Lower Alston. And, um, you know, it was pretty cool. Nice place. Lower Alston has uh, always been sort of, you know, my favorite part of the of the city. Because, you know, it's houses, trees. There's a 7-Eleven there, which I spent many, many late nights at. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts, which is across the street from the 7-Eleven. And a lot of times, I would uh, I just kind of post up there between like 10 ten, ten thirty, with a cup of coffee, notebook, that kind of thing. You know, the girl moved back. We lasted for a few days, and then she dropped the hammer on me. You know, the details to this day are still shrouded in mystery. I had a lot of theories about what was, actu- what was actually going on. One of the times that I had visited her out in Berkeley, I noticed that there was this guy around waiting, apparently biding his time, apparently waiting. I just couldn't couldn't quite prove that there was something going on, but you know nonetheless, uh, in hindsight, I see that this guy might have been playing that long game. you know, So anyway, I get back, we break up, and it's darkness. The whole summer she was living like two miles away from me, but she may as well have been living on another continent. During that summer, I believe that's when the mission was formed. I worked so I could live, survive, but music was going to be my life. The Rollins mentality was very intense on me during that summer. I was programmed by all the propaganda that I consumed about SST and Greg Ginn. Rehearsal, preparation, rehearsal, preparation, repetition. The only thing that I was actually missing was a band. This was way before the internet, before mobile phones and cellular technology. The city was a big place. The world was vast. I put an ad in the Boston Phoenix classifieds that was like pretty much the only way I think I'd actually ever get a chance to meet anyone that played music that I could play with I didn't really know anyone you know I just knew Ken <laughs> that's a good contact to have but I just you know I needed some some actual band members eventually I met Josh Scott who would end up being in my life for the next two decades we would eventually live together travel the planet record records make music and become close friends through that same ad i met this guy kev that was a great player and a great singer and um that pretty much was the core of um of a band that we would eventually call otis somehow brian strawn ended up playing drums for us we had a guy before him or I don't quite remember how this whole thing went down. I know I know Brian was someone I knew. He'd, you know, maybe with the guys from from Washington State, we'd started playing with Brian. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. You know, there were some other cats in there, but I won't balk you guys down with the details. So that was Otis. It was the first real band that I played in. I hit it hard. I wanted to succeed. You know, whatever the fuck that meant. We practiced a lot. We were serious. It was a thing. Me, Josh, and Kev ended up living in this house on Hooker Street in Lower Alston. The house had a basement, and that, you know, of course. We set up our gear, had the PA, and that was our home base. It was a trip living in that house. It was us, our friend Ian, this dude named Reuben, and his girlfriend Allie. I had the attic room. Otis and Ian's band practiced in the basement you know even even the the day that I moved into that house was interesting a really nice-looking girl lived in the room that I was taking over when I was showing up with all my stuff she was moving the last of her gear out I tried to kick it to her of course and I was a recently single guy trying to get back in, the action. She seemed pretty responsive, but, you know, whatever. She ended up leaving a box of her stuff in the room. She said she'd come back the following week to pick it up. Of course, I was stoked. I figured I'd make my move when she came back to get her box. Of course, she never showed. Months went by, and her box of stuff lay on the floor of my attic room. It became, it became clear that she wasn't coming back. Of course, I went through the box. Panties, you know, T-shirts, socks, and a notebook. At night, I sat up and read the notebook. It was her diary. <sighs> yeah, I did that. It's kind of depressing, I guess. Loneliness. Motivate you to do things like this, I suppose. It was kind of an odd feeling. There was a lot of detailed sexual stuff in there. It all added to the mystique. Who was this mystery girl? Would I ever see her again? It was things like this that I hung on to in those days. Some more time went by. There was a telephone jack in the room. I just assumed it was an extension of the house phone, so I plugged in this uh, you know, phone receiver that I had from my previous basement apartment. I didn't think anything about it. One day, I was at work, and Kev called me up. He asked me if the phone ever rang when I was in my room. It had, but I never picked it up. I just let it ring, and eventually I figured someone downstairs would get it. He told me that he heard the phone ring, and instead of running downstairs to the kitchen, he went into my room and answered it. In and of itself, that's not such a weird thing, because, you know, the attic, there is a second floor, and then the first floor, the ground floor, was where the kitchen and the phone were. Instead of running downstairs, yeah, sure, why not? It's kind of weird running into someone's room, but he ended up doing it anyway, so... So anyway, he told me that when he picked up the phone, like some guy was on the other end and he was looking to set up some sort of rendezvous with a woman. You know, a date. You know. It was very weird. A few days later, I was laying in bed reading. It was later in the evening, like maybe 10. It wasn't really in the middle, like late, late, but it was late enough. The phone rang. I let it go for a few rings. It stopped I picked it up and put my ear to the receiver I heard the voice of a woman and a man the guy was staying at the Ritz Carlton Hotel downtown he was negotiating a massage with the woman she said for $80 you can get a full body massage with a hand release the guy was okay with the price and added that he wasn't bad looking. They both hung up, and the line was dead. <laughs> kind of paints a, a picture here, I think, of this uh, this young lady that lived in that room. I think I feel. So anyway, we ended up using that line to book the first Otis tour across the country. We'd call people in like South Dakota. We called people in Washington State, you know, Chicago. Until the phone was, you know, shut down. One day I picked it up and it was dead. To this day, I still don't really know how that all happened. You know what I mean? And, I don't know. It's just like one of those anomalies of the analog world. I feel like in this digital age, things like that would probably never happen. At the time... Alston was starting to be known as Alston Rock City because of all the bands that were operating there. There was Tree, Road Saw, Honky Ball, 454 Big Block, and some other bands that I'm probably forgetting about. Otis fit right in there. We were on this Helmet Melbourne's Melvin's trip. It wasn't the most unique thing. But we wanted to go for it. We booked our own tours, though we briefly worked with a big agent called Premier. We signed a deal with Cherry Disc Records, who were kind of one of the more ambitious local labels. I think their big claim to fame was this band Letters to Cleo, who had a song on the Melrose Plays soundtrack. I don't know. There was a sort of unspoken agenda with Cherry Disc. They were trying to do big business with Majors. I don't know. It was, it was all in all it was pretty cool. Tree was on that label. This band Toe Tag. Um, I remember having the you know initial meetings with John Horton and this dude Graham. We had to drive all the way out to Watertown. And they had an office space like upstairs from like a I think it was like a barber shop or something. And it was like the first time I'd ever been involved in anything like that. So I thought it was like, you know, I was tripping out on the whole thing. Sitting in this like office, these guys got computer, you know, telephones, there's posters of all these releases they had coming out. And it was all pretty surreal because I never really considered myself to be a musician or much of any kind of, you know, artist or any of those things. So, you know, I I was tripping out on the whole thing. You know back then it was a totally reasonable situation for a small band to get signed to a major and then have this career. It's, in, in hindsight it was it's clear that major labels still had no idea what they were doing. You know but this was the era of Soundgarden, Nirvana, Helmet. Even Unsane had a brief major label thing. You know, It was like the days of alternative rock. Where dudes wore sweaters and had moppy haircuts. And there were girls playing bass. Like that kind of thing. Lollapalooza. Big t-shirts. You know. Jay Maskis. Sonic Youth. You know. Indie rock chicks. Working at record stores. You know. I briefly stalked this girl that worked at Newberry Comics for a while. Never really knew... How to talk to her, but I would roll up in there pretty much every day. Bought a, bought a record, and you know that was the, pretty much the extent of it. Fucking loser. <laughs> it was kind of a good time, even though at the time I was in this dark, heavy place. I would feel pain, loneliness. I was still kind of processing everything that had happened between me and that girl. I was running away from my feelings. I was afraid. Alston was kind of this coolest place to live. A lot of stuff was going on. It was a different place than it was now. I go back there these days for shows and most of the old places are gone. There used to be this place called bunratty's later they changed the name to local 186 but it was still pretty much the same you know kind of place it was one of my favorite places aside from playing a ton of shows there i saw some great shows neurosis played there back in the day down at kenmore square there was the rat skeller or the rat which is legendary it was kind of the Boston CBGBs, you know, Metallica, the, the police, Ramones, Talking Heads. A couple of doors down was this place called the Deli House, which is the closest thing to a tri-state style diner. I spent many nights there, late at night, on my own. There was Nuggets, Killer Record store. It's all gone now, paved over and sterilized. It's like the conquering army rewriting history. The sad part is that younger kids are missing out. And they'll never know how cool it used to be. How sketchy and wild it all was. The coolest place by far was this place called the Middle East. The Rat was more, in my opinion, it's kind of like this 80s thing. Like, its heyday was the 80s. You know, and in the 90s, it was kind of in a rut. I don't know. Some of you guys might disagree with me, but it's my opinion. The Middle East, though, I saw some primo shows. Laughing Hyenas, Cows, Neurosis, Tar, Helmet. One of the coolest I saw was this band called The God Machine. They're a band that sort of came and went. A while back, I bought an issue of Thrasher, and there was a cassette enclosed. The cassette had wool, quicksand, and this band called The God Machine. That was the track that I dug the most. It was the song called Home from their first album, Scenes from the Second Story. They were, I'm assuming, classified as an alternative band. But they had this really heavy vibe. There's like samples and I mean I recommend people trying to find this. I'm sure there's somewhere some MP3 download that you can locate that'll have this record and you know or maybe on discogs or maybe you'll find it in the 50 cent dollar bin in some record store somewhere because nobody remembers them man you know they had their moment. It felt like for six months people cared and they just like faded away into obscurity. But anyway, shortly after I got that Thrasher, I saw that they were playing at the Middle East. So, of course, I went. You know, and it was like, you know, the Middle East downstairs is like a fairly big room. You know, it's like I think you could fit like maybe maybe 600 people. You know, I mean, it was big. I saw Roses play there, the Melbournes. you know. Place was packed. I don't recall who else was on the bill, but the place was like packed. They were the headliner. It ruled. Smoke machine, you know, dark lighting. They had this whole like image going. But as quickly as they surfaced, they disappeared. You know, once again. Try to find it, man. Good record. It sounds a little dated these days, but the songs are really cool. Otis ran its course. Me and Kev were just on different pages creatively. We did some U.S. tours, did a short run with the Ramones, which was pretty insane. That was the first big rock tour that I ever did. I saw how it was done. It made me want to do this stuff even harder. I wanted to get to that place somehow. It was the beginning of this journey that I'm still on. I thought we could have gotten signed just like Helmet and the Melvins. But at the end of the day, the songs were just not good. They weren't good enough. We were heavily derivative, and the lyrics barely made any sense. Weren't catchy. Didn't have any hooks. It wasn't extreme enough to be on the fringe. And it was too heavy and lacked originality or any hooks to be on the radio. Honestly, I can't even listen to the two records we made these days. So that band ended. It was around this time that I started working at Newberry Comics at the warehouse. That was actually a pretty cool thing to do around the time. You know, all these band guys worked there. And um, they were pretty uh, cavalier with giving you time off. You know, unfortunately at the time I really wasn't in a band so I didn't have to worry about that. I was living with my girlfriend, no band, and I was going to this warehouse job every day. I was back in Lower Alston. The relationship was on the rocks, which had become a recurring theme throughout my entire life. I briefly joined this band called 454 Big Block. They started out as kind of this generic Alice in Chains kind of sounding band, but at this point they were going for this more hardcore based, you know, kind of thing because it was all dudes from Wrecking Crew and Eye for an Eye that were in the band. Anyway, I caught the tail end of that band. You know, they were pretty much dissolving when I joined. And everyone pretty much lost interest. I started playing with Taz Niles. Who, who, who if you might remember was the drummer of La Gritona, Suicide King, and you know, this this other band called Michael Mancini, which actually started out as basically La Gratona without Collins singing. My good friend Chris Lorden was the one that suggested Taz and I meet, that we were kind of were both on the same page creatively and it would be a good thing for us to uh, make music together. So anyway, Taz and I, would get together. we do these long, trippy noise jams in the practice space that formerly I used to practice with 454 at. And you know, We'd record everything. I think I have hours of cassette tapes with these crazy drum and guitar jams, noise, feedback, all improv. I don't know if it's listenable at all. There's a little bit of a snippet one of those pieces you know years year years and years later i put out a discography of all the early anodyne you know releases and there's a track on there which i actually mastered or had mastered from a cassette and that's a little taste of what taz and i were getting into you know it was a lot of fun at the time coming out of another failed relationship it was one of the only things that was kind of keeping me you know keeping my head together it was a heavy time you know it was just one of those like dark periods in your life when the lady and i broke up i had moved into um, this apartment on the infamous 38 calumet building out in mission hill i lived there with dean Dean and I were in four fifty four Big Block together for a while. And you know, he'd gone off and done something else. Eventually Dean and I would go into business doing the studio. I'll leave that part of the story out to protect the innocent. Living there was probably one of the all time low points of my life, but also one of the freest times of my life as well. Ah, the duality. It was filled with a crew of guys that really didn't give a fuck about anything. You could walk in on any given day and see some really hard looking motherfucker getting tattooed on the couch. It was pit bulls, straight edge, veganism, violence and general mayhem. Rama, who was running Big Wheel Recreations was living on the first floor with this dude that was playing in the hardcore band, In My Eyes. Later on, he would become the bassist in the popular mall punk band, The Explosion. There was a revolving door of characters moving in and out of that apartment. Members of Ten Yard Fight, ex-members of Wrecking Crew, Warzone, a former white power skinhead. It was an interesting mix of people. I was doing my thing, working my job at New Ray Comics, and going to jam sessions with Taz. The time at the practice base was the only time where I wasn't in, in deep emotional pain. On the outside I was lonely, bummed out, and totally alienated. This was the atmosphere that spawned Anodyne. The original lineup was me, Taz, Mike Davis on bass. Mike was in a band called Luca Brazzi, which you all should also look up. Ale from Spore was uh, originally was just sort of doing noise but he would also end up playing guitar and doing some vocals and we kind of split the vocal duties back then and um, it was exactly what I needed I took all that lonely energy and poured it into the band. Even when the band wasn't rehearsing I would haunt the practice base on my own playing guitar late into the night I'd take breaks and walk down to the Dunkin Donuts on the corner and get coffee It was the only 24-hour Dunkin' Donuts in the entire city. I'd sit there and just exist. Back then, you had to be 24-7 in your head. There was no cell phones or Instagram or Facebook to distract you. You just had to face the whole thing on your own. ISIS was also forming around this time. Aaron Harris, Mike Gallagher... Clifford Meyer We all worked together at the warehouse It was a good time I saw most of their early shows around Boston As you all know They would go on to do great things They practiced down the hallway for me Every now and then I'd run into those guys Or I'd hear them practicing And it would be this Huge Heavy mammoth And I was like damn There's definitely something going on Man the memories, you can't live in that world for too long. The big picture is ahead, not behind.